Welcome, everybody, to our latest podcast. Again, the date is relevant, exactly a month before we are eating our turkey, Friday the 25th of November. And today I'm joined by Robert and John, and we are going to have a general discussion about the current state of affairs here in the UK and globally, and then we're going to move on to one or two specific items. Since we last recorded this, the retail price index has crept to over 14% now, 14.2%. And whilst I might be 54, I do remember that the last time the retail price index was at this level, interest rates were double digits rather than the current 3% at the moment. And so therefore, as per usual, I'm going to ask John, what are your thoughts Well, firstly, you've got a bad attitude because why are you quoting the RPI when everybody knows that now we must talk CPI, okay? Zuckerberg and all his mates are going to come and sort you out because the CPI is the lower one. That's the one we must talk. That doesn't include housing, does it, the CPI? Because there aren't a lot of people out there who have houses and it doesn't affect them that much. Repeat after me, I will never use RPI again. (laughs) We're just in the same place we were, aren't we? Uh, Which is that those who have been tasked with uh, monetary policy, those people, it's not just the Bank of England, just look at the ECB, look at the Fed. I mean, the Fed are doing slightly better now, but they've all misread the situation. They all wanted to believe the theories that they wanted to believe in, and they've all been proven wrong. So we now have an inflationary fireball that is ricocheting around the world. And um, it's going to take some time. And now they've decided they have to try and do something. But as you rightly say, the last time inflation was at this level, it was 40 years ago. So that would be, what, 1982. And ironically, books fizz were at number one, I seem to recall, in 1982 with the land of make-believe, which pretty much sums up Andrew Bailey and Jay Powell and, um, and Christine Lagarde's ability to properly manage the job that they've been given. And of course, John, Paul Volcker was uh, in charge of the Fed, I think, in the very late 70s, early 80s, and was credited with getting America out of this mess and then handing the baton to Reagan, who had a very successful two terms in power as the American economy boomed. He was a man who was given a job and he did it. And due to the mess that had been made by, by predecessors, And he was the man that that got the blame, but he was prepared to put rates up to where they needed to go to crush inflation. And inevitably, it caused a deep recession. While that obviously wasn't great in the near term, the prosperity that the US then enjoyed after that, once inflation had been sorted, is there for all to see. It goes back to something we've said many times, which is, in this day and age, no bad stuff is allowed to happen. But you can't have good stuff all the time and this is why we are where we are and the truth of it is we need a volker to come along and sort it my guess is that there are no volkers left or if they are they won't be given the job no i suspect you're right there just isn't the appetite to do what is needed and i suspect that the longer this goes on for the longer inflation will carry on for in this country. We've seen it from the unions with regard to strike action, etc. And 
if inflation gets embedded, my understanding is that it will take a lot longer to get rid of it and it will be a lot more damaging. We all can remember from the 1970s, because we're old enough to remember it, it was just endemic. It was inflation never went away because of inept government. And um, obviously in those days, certainly here, uh, interest rates were set by governments. So we know what it's like when inflation gets out of the box. It's very, very difficult to get back in. And I think there are just far too many people out there now who seem to think that they could get away with ludicrous interest rates, with printing money and this is where it's all led to. And of course, the law of sod being what it is, it's come at the time when you've now got problems with, with the oil price due to Putin's invasion of Ukraine. That isn't why oil's been going up, by the way, but it's just an aggravating factor. So you know, the law of sod being what it is, it's come at the wrong time. Once inflation gets away, it's very, very difficult to control. There are just too many people out there who don't remember what trying to control inflation is all about. And they're having to start again. And I say it so many times. But you only have one job to do, and that was to hit an inflation target. That's the ECB's and the Bank of England's job. It's slightly different in the States because they do have an employment mandate as well, which I think is totally bonkers because you're actually trying to do two things at the same time that really are not necessarily compatible. But if you're running a central bank and you've been given one job to do more or less, which is to hit an inflation target and you are so badly off target now, well, I don't know how these people keep their jobs. Well, I do actually because... No, no Volcker type of governor would ever get the job now. So you have to say the right things to get the job in the first place. And um, it doesn't matter that you're wholly incompetent, so long as you're on message. Yeah, just going back to oil, John, it's difficult to see how oil prices are going to come down significantly from here, given the direction towards zero emissions, etc., and the push for green energy, because we're still woefully short of green energy to replace the necessity for, for fossil fuels. And with the confusion, let's call it, in the market, then the likes of BP and Shell don't know whether they're coming or going when it comes to looking for more oil. And given the payback time, they're investing for 30 odd years uh, in an oil well. They don't want it to be capped in 10 years time because they will have done their shareholders a disservice. Yeah, yeah. Well, never did I assume that I'd be drawing a comparison between Booksviz and, and Royal Dutch Shell and BP. But here we go again with the land of make-believe because you will not hit these emission targets in, what, the next 10 years or so. They're impossible. They cannot happen. So you either live in the land of where reality rules or we go off into another fairy tale. There are far too many people running governments and running supranational organisations who think that because they say it, it will happen. Well, it will not happen. Oil will be used, I don't know, 20 years from here in large parts of the world and you either accept that or you accept that the standards of living of western nations are going to crater and no government is prepared to stand up and say that we just keep tilting at windmills and saying that within say 10 years you know internal combustion engines will be done away with well they won't be and 
clean energy, green energy, call it what you want, is not developed enough to be able to take the baton. You can either look at that from, from a realistic perspective or you can just drift off into, into nonsense again. There is no point, as you've already said, for energy businesses to commit to huge projects, whether it's uh, oil fields, um, new capacity, whether it's refineries, when they're not going to get adequate payback. So why go and look for some more oil in the North Sea, which is definitely there, when you're now getting hammered with windfall taxes, you might, if you're BP, you might as well just pump more oil off the north slope of, of Alaska, where you've already found it, and just drain more oil from that. Uh, it, it makes far more sense. What we actually need in this transitionary period is a decent supply of new oil and gas to cushion the blow. I know that sounds heretical, but it's realistic. And therefore, while... Oil companies find themselves uh, getting getting hammered every which way. They're washed with cash because they don't need to, or they're not prepared to commit capital in terms of exploration anymore. And I suspect that the wish list of liberals and green energy wallers is going to ensure that the price of a barrel of oil stays at elevated levels, I think, pretty much from here on. The fact is that the standard of living has improved over the last 40 years, and it has been driven by cheap fossil fuels. And you've just got to accept that. Therefore, people don't necessarily want to go backwards, Greta. Well, standards of living really have been improving for the better part of 200 years, and they're all based upon the consumption of fossil fuels. These are facts. You can ignore them if you wish. But uh, the reality is that they cannot just be replaced over such a short time scale. So, uh, you know, we are where we are. There are other issues as well, which is that if you look at where most of the economic growth is going to come from, They'll happily burn oil. You know, countries like Indonesia or Malaysia that have significant oil deposits, they're going to have to continue exploiting them. It makes sense for them. They're not going to transition to green energy on the scale that Western-style governments are, are still attempting to do. So I don't think it's going to make that much difference anyway. Reality I can deal with, it's fairy tales that I'd rather leave alone. So I think we are looking at, in a way, a golden age in that ultimately, yes, if we look 20, 30, maybe 40 years down the line, fossil fuels will be used on a, on a much reduced scale. But let's say over the next decade uh, and beyond, I don't see really a catalyst for for the price of a barrel of oil to, um, to weaken too much. I'd like to talk about commercial property funds because they're becoming a bit worrying. We've seen before that M&G property was gated, I think a couple of years ago, probably, and others have been gated recently. M&G in due respect to them, said we're gating this because we need to just get our assets in order and give us time. I get that, but there are an alarming amount of funds these days that are now saying the same thing, and it's all a bit worrying. Over to you. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I've been doing this job now for 35 years and I have never bought any commercial property funds. And the simple reason for that is that most of my clients, their biggest asset is property. Now, I know that's residential property and I know there is a difference, but property is property to a greater extent. So we just haven't bought that asset. It is concerning how many people are invested in uh, property funds of varying different types and also the number of people who will be invested in property via other funds like managed funds, various single premium insurance bonds with profit funds, the cautious managed funds. Because commercial property is seen as a low risk or lower risk asset class, I think there's going to be quite a lot of it if you were to drill underneath the bonnet. But I totally agree with you, Robert. Money is being withdrawn from various funds at the moment. And then, of course, it's not like a managed fund which invests in equity. If you hold Nestle shares, there are several billion of them out there. Every Nestle share is the same as the next one. And there's a ready market between 8 and 4.30 every weekday. They're liquid. You could probably sell £100 million worth fairly easily. But we all know there's a world of difference between a office block in Canary Wharf, an office block in Mayfair or in Liverpool. They all have a different value, different potential uses, etc. They will attract different types of tenants Everyone is unique. Selling them is, or realizing that asset, you are looking for an organization coming the other way who are going to buy that. And then you've obviously got a conveyancing process to go through as well. So what I'm really saying is that when you ring up to sell your investment in Nestle, it's a two-day process. How long is a piece of string when it comes to commercial property? Who knows? And what's happened is that uh, some of these funds have realize that there is going to be a call on cash. And so there's quite a lot of commercial property uh, on the market at the moment. And as you allude to, the danger is that these funds will be gated, which in simple terms means you can't invest in them, you can't take your money out. Maybe they'll be gated for a year or two. Some people that won't matter to. If you're a 10-year, 20-year investor, then it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference. But if you are a trust fund or a deceased state or something where you want to get the assets sorted or sold and you've got a purpose for that money, it could be a headache for you. You also are under pressure as the manager to sell the most liquid investments. And if it turns out that your best investments are the most liquid, then you're actually diluting the quality of the assets as well. I think that's a very good point, John. It's not ideal, is it, really? Domestic property, if, if you're buying property because you want to live in the property, that's fine. But if you're buying property to speculate on property, that's a different issue. I think people are far better off buying property direct. If you are a property investor, you know what you're doing. You've been doing it for years. Go and buy a second house or a third house, whatever it might be, or a flat in London, or go and buy a commercial property directly. Do not get a pooled investment with lots of other people who have different agendas, etc., etc. And of course, there are significant charges as well. Changing the subject, I would like to get on to my hobby horse, which is 
administration by large organizations. Yet again this week, we have chased several times a payment from a large national firm of investment managers who have finally agreed that they do owe us a significant amount of money, which they seem to have forgotten about. I'm sure it would have come through eventually, but trying to to get money out of some of these organizations for our clients who have transferred to us um, is not easy. And I can't help but think that some of these firms are understaffed and the people who are in the administration centers are inexperienced. We have a hands-on approach and we are very much on top of our administration. In my opinion, you've got to be. And what's more, the regulator needs to look more and more at poor administration. There are two parts to this job. One is buying investments, and that is very subjective. The paperwork is the other half and is an exact science. And as further firms are consolidated within our sector, what most people don't realize is that there is an amalgamation of computer systems. And as soon as the computer systems get amalgamated, my experience over the last 35 years is that things get missed potentially there are problems there are delays and it all becomes very frustrating yeah i mean folk out there won't realize i don't think the delays involved with for example dealing with registrars registrars have told us that there is at least an eight-week delay on replying to inquiries i mean that is nonsense so, sorry, where is the regulator? Uh, no idea. I think you're right, Robert. I mean, I speak to people who talk about the administration of their investments and they just get more and more fed up with the quality of it and sort of describe it as trying to, to uh, pull hen's teeth. People get in touch with us. They want a valuation. They get it within the hour. We regularly get people who have mislaid their tax information. They get a copy within an hour. Their accountant can get a copy within an hour. We are always on the ball with these things. Um, and there is somebody, there is a human who knows your account to speak to at the other end of the phone. To sum up, using a very annoying Bucks Fizz analogy, we've made our mind up. We've always made our mind up. John's absolutely right. The central bankers, land of make-believe. We've discussed RPI. We've discussed oil. We've discussed commercial property. We've also had a marvellous... Um, I, I love Mrs. Malapropisms, um, which Duncan describes... I mean, no no disrespect to him, but he describes as drilling underneath the bonnet. I think it's actually looking beneath the bonnet, but hey, whatever. Finally... Can I please refer our younger uh, listeners to the recipe for Bucks Fizz, which indeed is two parts champagne and one part orange juice. So enjoy. I like spoonerisms, but it's a problem when you're pronouncing Bucks Fizz. So make sure you don't get it wrong. This material shouldn't be considered as advice or an investment recommendation. You should consult an advisor regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority prior to making investment decisions. All investments carry a degree of risk. The value of any investment or income received from it can go up as well as down and you may not get back the amount invested. 
information recorded within this podcast was accurate at the time of recording.